Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Caffeine. You might be having a cup of coffee, brewing some tea, or sipping on an energy drink right now. Most adults drink caffeine in some capacity and don't think anything of it. But why do our bodies depend on it in the first place? And how much caffeine is too much? Hello and welcome to another episode of Prism of the Past. My name is Blair and today we're going to be talking about caffeine. We'll touch upon its history, why we can't get enough of it, and some of its recent controversies surrounding the marketing of energy drinks to children as well. Jesse, those pills are dangerous. Yeah, well, so's geometry. You told me you were gonna stop taking them. I need them to stay awake and study, okay? No, it's not okay. Jesse, I'm worried about you. Give me the pills. Mind your business. Caffeine is an alkaloid that occurs naturally in cacao beans, tea leaves, cola leaves, and dozens of other plants. It serves as a central nervous system stimulant that can boost mood and increase concentration and metabolism. As you probably know, caffeine is primarily found in coffee, tea, and sodas. Our bodies absorb caffeine through the small intestine before it's dissolved into the bloodstream. And since it's water and fat soluble, caffeine can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. TheAddictionCenter.com describes how this crossing of the blood-brain barrier can easily lead to addiction. Caffeine closely resembles adenosine, a molecule already found in our brain, so it can easily fit in those brain cell receptors. Without adenosine in those receptors, we don't feel as tired and natural stimulants like dopamine are produced. If you drink caffeine enough, your brain actually compensates for this by growing more adenosine receptors, and this is how people build up a tolerance to caffeine over time. The more receptors a brain has, the more caffeine it takes to block them and overcome that feeling of tiredness. Although not all studies agree about the effects of caffeine on health, the downsides of caffeine withdrawal are universally recognized. Headaches, fatigue, decreased energy, decreased alertness, depressed mood, difficulty concentrating, and irritability await up to 50% of caffeine addicts who can't get their fix. Because caffeine is the most commonly used drug in the world, concerns about its regulation are emerging. According to a 2018 peer-reviewed study, concentrated caffeine products have contributed to more than 92 deaths worldwide. In most cases, these deaths have been attributed to an increase in the availability of highly concentrated caffeine pills, powders, and energy drinks. So how did caffeine become so popular and when did we start to rely on it to fuel the meat machines that crank the gears of the world economy? To answer those questions, we need to take a look at the history of caffeine. There are a few stories floating around about how different cultures discovered caffeine. In Asia, a Chinese legend claims that Emperor Shen Yung discovered caffeine in 2700 BC when some tea leaves fell into a pot of water he was boiling. An African legend claims that an Ethiopian goat herder named Kaldi discovered the caffeinating qualities of coffee beans when he noticed his goats becoming extremely energetic after eating the berries from their trees. However it got started, caffeine consumption spread far and wide throughout the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. 
As coffee made its way out of Africa, it became a popular drink of the educated intellectuals who taught at or attended European universities. This was thanks to the mentally stimulating effects of coffee and the fact that unlike alcohol, it tended to make people productive and alert instead of clumsy and tired. That said, not everyone was a fan of coffee. According to the National Coffee Association, some priests in the Catholic Church at the time were preaching about the evils of the drink, calling it the bitter invention of Satan. The controversy was actually so great that some members of the clergy actually asked Pope Clement VIII to condemn the beverage. He told them he would consider their request, but decided he wanted to try it before passing his judgment. Fortunately for coffee lovers everywhere, he decided that he liked the bitter beverage and gave it papal approval. After the Pope's endorsement, there was a boom, not only in caffeine consumption, but in the arts and sciences as well. By the mid 17th century, there were over 300 coffee houses in London. At these coffee clubs, intellectuals could gather to discuss and debate new ideas and concepts. Coffee houses have been credited with the formation of several long-standing British institutions, including the London Stock Exchange and the Royal Society of London. Many famous historical figures were members. For example, early members of the Oxford Coffee Club included famed physicist Sir Isaac Newton, founder of the British Museum Hans Sloan, and Sir Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet fame. At the Boston Tea Party of 1773, American colonists were frustrated at Britain for imposing taxation without representation. In protest, they dumped 342 chests of British tea into the Boston Harbor. For the duration of the American Revolution, drinking coffee became a political statement. Many Americans made the switch from the tea leaf to the coffee bean. The Civil War also boosted consumption as soldiers relied on it for energy. By the late 1800s, coffee had become a worldwide commodity, PBS writes. Entrepreneurs began looking for new ways to profit from the popular beverage. In 1864, John and Charles Arbuckle, brothers from Pittsburgh, purchased Jabez Burns' new invented self-emptying coffee bean roaster. The Arbuckle brothers began selling pre-roasted coffee in paper bags by the pound. They named their coffee Ariosa and found great success selling it to the cowboys of the American West. It wasn't long before James Folger followed suit and began selling coffee to the gold miners of California. You make me feel very unwifely, McNaughton. Go barbecue. I still say don't serve your awful coffee with my steaks. Oh, Mrs. Olsen, he's always crabbing about my coffee. I could cry. This blazed the trail for several other big name coffee producers, including Maxwell House and Hills Brothers. The first real caffeine scare occurred in 1911, involving none other than Coca-Cola. The case, formerly titled United States versus 40 barrels and 12 kegs of Coca-Cola, commenced in the spring of that year after Coca-Cola was charged with false advertising for, quote, quietly loading its bottles with a risky stimulant. Although this sure sounds like something far more illicit, Coca-Cola had already moved cocaine from their ingredient list a decade prior. This trial was about the amount of caffeine in their drinks. Some toxicologists testified that the drink caused reflex irritability of the respiratory center and behavioral scientists said it was addictive, earning the nickname dope. The head of the pharmaceutical division of the US Department of Agriculture called caffeine a drug having poisonous tendency. The chief chemist at the US Department of Agriculture was also caffeine hostile, calling Coca-Cola drinks habit-forming and nerve-wracking. Coca-Cola disputed the charges and hired a Columbia-trained psychologist, Harry Hollingsworth, to back them up. Harry and his wife, Leda, conducted a test for the company, recruiting 16 participants, 10 men and six women, to take caffeine or Coca-Cola syrup in a range of doses. 
All the participants were in good health and the study was double blind. The Chattanooga Daily Times reported, his testimony was by far the most interesting and technical of any yet introduced. Cross-examination failed to shake any of his deductions. The scientist reported an increased capacity clearly related to caffeine. It was, Hollingworth said, rapidly and temporarily uplifting, and its predominant effects seemed to be quicker mental reactions and finer motor coordination. Though Hollingsworth's testimony was the most memorable, it didn't win the day for Coca-Cola. In the end, they agreed to pay court costs and cut the amount of caffeine in its soft drink by half. In 1916, the US Supreme Court declared caffeine to be addictive under the law. The Hollingsworth investigation was one of the earliest examples of psychological research conducted by a large corporation and set a standard for psychopharmacological research, despite the minute impact their study had on the case at that time. So this Coca-Cola must have contained a ton of caffeine to go on trial, right? Well, it actually had about as much as a can of Red Bull, about 80 milligrams per serving. It's interesting to see the parallels between Coca-Cola's situation in the early 20th century and relatively recent calls for energy drink regulation. Thanks to the 1958 Food Additives Amendment to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, laws currently limit how much caffeine can be in our drinks today. Any substance intentionally added to food is now subject to pre-market approval by the FDA, unless it's gross or generally recognized as safe. Since caffeine was ruled as addictive in 1916, it falls under this amendment. Although this number varies based on your sensitivity and metabolism, the FDA has cited 400 milligrams, which is roughly four or five cups of coffee as the daily limit for adults. There's no set level for children and the American Academy of Pediatrics discourages caffeine for minors as a whole. As somewhere between 80 to 100 milligrams of caffeine is in an average cup of coffee, we generally don't have to worry too much about safety when brewing or ordering a morning pick-me-up. But that doesn't mean caffeine consumption is entirely without risk. We'll start with supplements. The FDA actually doesn't impose safety requirements for caffeine and dietary supplements. According to the Council for Responsible Nutrition, ingredients that were on the market prior to 1994, like caffeine, are presumed safe unless the FDA has specific evidence that they aren't. As of today, there's no requirement that food products such as energy drinks declare the total amount of caffeine in them or even append warning labels. Although the FDA claims that they aggressively monitor the marketplace and can pursue enforcement action, they've only released a guidance for industry document as of 2018. To quote that guidance document, bulk powdered caffeine products are sold to consumers in packages as large as 10 kilograms, which contains more than 10,000 recommended servings. A bulk product of that size contains hundreds of potentially lethal doses. It goes on to discuss the dangers of easily preventable measuring errors. For example, if the caffeine powder is packed too tightly or if the supplement company includes a non-standard measuring cup with their product, there's potential for miscalculation and accidental overdose. The difference between a heaping scoop and a level scoop can increase the amount of caffeine in a single dose by 200%, which could make the difference between a buzzed up afternoon at the gym and a trip to the emergency room. In fact, according to the FDA, just one teaspoon of pure powdered caffeine can contain the same amount of caffeine as 28 cups of coffee. This is exactly the kind of mistake that killed 21-year-old Lachlan Foote. Lachlan died in 2018 after accidentally adding too much pure caffeine powder to his protein shake. Someone else gave Lachlan the powder in an unlabeled glass jar. These overdoses are more likely to happen to someone using purified caffeine powder or a supplement with caffeine as opposed to coffee because of the concentration. 
According to a peer-reviewed study in The Impact of Caffeine and Coffee on Human Health, the vast majority of the 28 accidental caffeine deaths they investigated were from over-the-counter caffeine products like weight loss supplements. The other deaths attributed to caffeine overdose were either intentional or the cause was unclear. Ultimately, the FDA didn't take any action until they met with the families of two young men who died from caffeine overdoses in 2014. The agency issued warning letters to a handful of distributors of pure powdered caffeine, cracking down on their products in particular because they are arguably the most dangerous. A recommended safe serving, for example, is only 1 16th of a teaspoon of powder, an amount so small it's difficult to accurately measure, especially when a slight variation in dosage can be deadly. Then again, not everyone is about to act on the FDA's warnings and recommendations. Herbalife still hasn't. In 1985, government regulators charged the Herbalife company with making untrue or misleading product claims, resulting in the illness and death of some consumers. The regulators specifically took issue with the high caffeine content of Herbalife's products. Loaded teas are colorful, vibrant drinks that look like slushies. Herbalife's marketing promises that their teas will give you energy and help you reach fitness and weight loss goals. Loaded teas are currently all the rage in the modern fitness community and Herbalife is the most popular company making them. Herbalife consultants who don't always disclose what they're selling to begin with make loaded teas up to 200 milligrams of caffeine, more than five times the average cup of actual tea. This might not matter for someone with a high tolerance for caffeine, but for anyone that's caffeine sensitive, it's like having two or three Red Bulls in one serving. Loaded teas are also known for containing massive amounts of vitamin B3, which can cause skin flushing, increased heart rate, and nausea. In 2018, the FDA banned some pure caffeine products, focusing on liquids and powders containing pure or highly concentrated caffeine, sold in large amounts that can't be easily measured. Pills and packets are acceptable. Bulk orders of powders and liquids aren't. Essentially, pure caffeine can't be sold in mass quantities or in a form that would cause a measurement error to render them toxic to consumers. Unfortunately, that's easier said than done. FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb said in a statement, despite multiple actions against these products in the past, we've seen a continued trend of products containing highly concentrated or pure caffeine being marketed directly to consumers as a dietary supplement and sold in bulk quantities. With up to thousands of recommended servings per container, we know these products are sometimes being used in potentially dangerous ways. And now some of those dangerous uses are trending on TikTok in the form of dry scooping workout videos. In these clips, people film themselves ingesting caffeine-laden pre-workout powders without mixing them in water first. This method of ingestion is actually incredibly risky and increases the chance of accidental overdose by quite a bit. Think about it. If you put too much caffeinated powder in your smoothie or your protein shake, you might notice you're getting a little jittery and put the beverage down before it's too late. But if you dump a scoop of powder right into your mouth, you'll be hit by the full effects of the caffeine all at once. And if you take too much, bad things can happen fast. In April, 2021, Briatni Portillo claimed she had a heart attack after eating a scoop of caffeinated pre-workout powder and attempting her exercise routine. On her TikTok channel, the 20-year-old says she initially felt side effects of fatigue, chest pain, and nausea, and she knew something was wrong when the pain in her chest went to her left side and her arm went limp. A trip to the ER revealed high levels of troponin in her blood, which can be an indicator of a heart attack. An EKG and an ultrasound of Portillo's heart revealed evidence of a non-ST segment elevation myocardial infection known as an NSTEMI. These are the mildest form of a heart attack, but can cause damage to the heart nonetheless. 
Dangerous viral trends like dry scooping are nothing new in the weird world of social media. So while a ban on bulk sales of caffeine powder is definitely a step in the right direction, it doesn't do much to help solve the caffeine problem in the unregulated supplement industry, nor does it address energy drinks. While energy drinks aren't necessarily harmful, they have the potential to be. They typically contain far more caffeine than an average coffee and enough sugar to exceed the recommended daily limit too. The Drug Abuse Warning Network created a report in 2014 that detailed the terrifying rise of energy drink-related emergency room visits. Their data shows that between 2007 and 2011, energy drink-related emergency room visits for patients that were 12 years old or more doubled, with one in 10 of those cases resulting in a longer hospital stay. According to their report, in 2011, there were 8,652 visits involving energy drinks in combination with alcohol or other drugs. Of these visits, 8% of the patients had to be hospitalized. Over 12,000 visits involved energy drinks alone. More of these patients, 12%, were hospitalized. The FDA Adverse Event Reporting System, or FAIRS, is a database containing adverse event reports, medical error reports, and product quality complaints resulting in adverse effects that were submitted to the FDA by healthcare professionals, consumers, and manufacturers. According to FAIRS, from 2004 to 2014, out of the 34 linked deaths, 22 were connected to 5-Hour Energy, 11 to Monster, and 1 to Rockstar brand energy drinks. Some of these deaths have been young teens, like 16-year-old Lana Hamann, who went into cardiac arrest after drinking multiple Red Bulls on vacation. A teenager from Maryland, Anise Fournier, suffered the same fate after drinking two 24-ounce Monster drinks within a 24-hour period. A 16-year-old boy, Davis Allen Kripe, collapsed and died of a caffeine overdose in 2017 after drinking a Mountain Dew, a cafe latte from McDonald's, and an energy drink. He consumed so much caffeine that it caused arrhythmia. In any event, energy drinks are most dangerous when combined with alcohol, a trend that's often seen in underage drinkers and is associated with binge drinking. According to CDC data in 2017, 10.6% of high school students and 31.8% of young adult ages 19 to 28 reported consuming alcohol mixed with energy drinks at least once. In a study among Michigan students, binge drinkers were more than twice as likely to mix alcohol with energy drinks. Drinkers in general aged 15 to 23 are four times more likely to binge drink at high intensity. Mixing energy drinks with alcohol masks the depressant effects of the booze, keeping drinkers from realizing how drunk they are, which can lead to more alcohol and potentially alcohol poisoning. And that's where we move on to a very specific beverage, the Four Loco. This caffeinated alcoholic beverage, Four Loco being the main of them, but there were others, rose to prominence in the alcoholic beverage industry in the uh, early 2010s. Made with malt liquor and a combination of taurine, ginseng, and caffeine, these alcoholic energy drinks boasted they would keep consumers horny, hyper, and happy. And for a few short years, they took a huge chunk of the market. Four Loco was invented in 2005 by Chris Hunter, Jason Freeman, and Jeff Wright, three Ohio State undergrads who noticed how many barflies were drinking Red Bull and liquor cocktails while out on a night of the town. They mixed up their own blend of malt liquor and stimulants and formed a company, Fusion LLC. It looked like a caffeine-fueled success story in the making. Business soared and Four Loco's brand market grew rapidly. Fusion expanded sales to Europe in 2008, and by 2009, they had nearly achieved nationwide distribution across the U.S., available in 46 out of 50 states. And by 2010, they were a cultural phenomenon. But then the damage reports started rolling in. 
In 2010, while the rest of the world waited for trapped Chilean miners to be rescued, four loco-fueled benders at two US colleges resulted in the hospitalization of 32 young adults. This was just the beginning of the troubles for the beverage company, which contained an estimated 135 milligrams of caffeine and 12% alcohol content in each can. Multiple deaths across the US that year were reported as being related to four local consumption. Consequently, the drink was banned from a large number of campuses across the US. By November, 2010, many grocery store chains dropped Four Loco and its sale was outright banned in Kansas, Michigan, Oklahoma, Utah, Washington, and New York. The FDA sent letters to Fusion as well as three other alcoholic energy drink companies stating that adding caffeine to alcohol created a product that they deemed unsafe and illegal. The company was given 15 days to remove any added caffeine from their beverages, facing a court order barring further sales and seizure of the products if they failed to comply. Fusion immediately announced they would voluntarily remove the caffeine from their Four loco recipes. And by the end of that same November, the rest of the alcoholic energy drink brands on the market removed the caffeine from their drinks as well. But it can't all be bad news, can it? Energy drinks can have positives too, don't they? Well, one article from Comprehensive Food Reviews in Science and Food Safety states, the cognitive and physiological effects after the consumption of an energy drink in comparison to a placebo resulted in significantly improved performance on both secondary memory and speed of attention. So energy drinks can serve a purpose for busy adults. They've gotten me through a lot of late night work sessions. And as long as I don't rely on them all the time or mix them with alcohol, it seems like it's gonna be all well, right? Well, wrong. The trouble is the energy drink industry doesn't seem to be pushing the same narrative. Instead, they're pushing their products onto children. And right after this quick ad break, we are going to discuss what they're doing by marketing to children. What do you wanna eat tonight? Maybe you want a home-cooked favorite, but don't feel like going to the store or worse yet, maybe you did go to the store and then you forgot one of the ingredients that you needed. Or maybe you're just in the mood to try something exciting and new, but wouldn't it be great to just stay in and not go out? Well, DoorDash connects you with everything you want whenever and however you want it. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered with DoorDash, get drinks, snacks, and other household goodies in under an hour. With over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants. And for a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off up to a $10 value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code PRISM. Don't forget that's code PRISM for 25% off your first order with DoorDash. Subject to change and terms apply. We all shop online and we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online and they have a range from tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands and even food delivery. I was shopping on Ulta recently for the Black Friday weekend because honestly, I haven't been wearing makeup that much this whole year, cause why? And I decided I finally wanna get back into doing that. So I bought some new makeup and sure as shit, honey popped right on down and got me extra savings. It was incredible. I saved like an extra 20% and I was like, how? But thank you. 
So here's the tea. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. I'd never recommend something I don't use and I've been using Honey for many years now. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com prism. That's joinhoney.com prism. Like you to show us the ways of meditation. Here, don't you have Red Bull where you come from? Red Bull gives you wings. Also, as Red Bull. Although the UK has banned the sale of energy drinks to those under 16, here in the US, the FDA has no official guidelines for children in energy drinks. Pediatric experts recommend that children under 12 years old should avoid caffeine entirely, and teens should limit their intake to 100 milligrams a day. That's three times less than what one can of Bang Energy drink contains. And they use influencers like Jojo Siwa, who has a huge youth fan base to promote their product. As expected, the manufacturers of Bang Energy drink are not alone. In 2014, the Yale Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity claimed one in three TV ads for sugary drinks viewed by teens in 2013 promoted energy drinks. Red Bull ads do carry labels that recommend children do not drink their energy drinks, but their ads are still being seen by children who, for instance, play mobile games that Red Bull advertises through or watch esports tournaments Red Bull sponsors. Red Bull denies intentionally marketing their drinks to kids, stating that it would, quote, undermine the credibility of the brand image in the eyes of young adults, end quote. However, a 2017 study published in the Journal of Public Health Nutrition argues that Red Bull does target young teens or at the very least, children certainly believe it's being pushed on them. Researchers at the University of Waterloo randomly assigned over 2000 Canadians ages 12 to 24 to review one in four online ads for Red Bull. Among the youngest subjects, those ages 12 to 14, nearly 72% of participants who viewed an advertisement featuring the company's sponsorship of the X Games, an extreme sports event, perceived the ad to be targeted to people their age and younger. The University of Waterloo researchers compare energy drink marketing practices with those of 20th century cigarette companies. While tobacco advertising was ostensibly targeted at adults, they write, it nevertheless achieved the very high levels of reach and appeal among young people. If Red Bull is trying to avoid targeting teens in their advertising, they're doing a terrible job. Either that, or they know exactly what they're doing and feigning ignorance. John Hopkins researchers argue that if caffeine had not been accepted as a flavor enhancer back in 1916, but as a psychoactive ingredient, then soft drinks, energy drinks, and other beverages might be treated like all other drugs, which are subject to additional regulations. Since caffeine isn't treated as a mood altering substance and because energy drinks are massively underregulated, the drinks don't require warning labels. According to CRNUSA.org, however, drugs like no-dose and Vivarin that have caffeine do require warning labels. If that makes absolutely no sense to you, good. It doesn't make any sense. It's a striking inconsistency that here in the US, an over-the-counter stimulant medication needs a series of warnings, and yet a 500 milligram energy drink can be marketed with no warnings and no information about caffeine dose on the packaging. Whether or not studies are on the same page about the dangers of caffeine, at the very least, regulations and restrictions around caffeinated products should be standardized, especially when energy drink makers' ads may be getting viewed by teens and children. Caffeine is still a substance that can impact your brain and body. Everyone reacts to caffeine differently. Therefore, there should be some label, some warning, particularly for smaller and younger consumers. In 2013, a Massey University study published in Appetite assessed participants' perceptions and understandings of caffeinated energy drinks across narrowly defined demographic age groups. 
providing a focused investigation on the demographic group specifically targeted by the industry. As you might expect, while adults have more awareness of how energy drinks are marketed, teens tend to take advertising tactics at face value. Those within the 29 to 35 year old range said things like, they need to look at their audience and I would like to see an age limit of 16 years placed on the sale of energy drinks. Respondents between the ages of 16 to 21 stated, if every single brand dropped its caffeine level, I would buy the one with the highest caffeine content. And if they were not safe, then they would not be selling them, would they? Clearly, the teens don't understand the dangers posed by energy drinks. The trouble isn't that caffeine itself is inherently problematic, but it is definitely possible to overdose. Those youngest groups are more sensitive to peer influencers and tend to be less aware of potential negative health consequences. That combination can be dangerous. And as there are no current regulations restricting the sale of energy drinks to children, it's important to recognize that. According to Investopedia, Red Bull sales are surging in emerging markets, such as India, Brazil, and Africa. According to the company, more than 7.9 billion cans of Red Bull were sold in 2020. That's a jump of 5.9% from sales recorded in 2019. Monster is the second largest energy drink company with a market share of 39% after Red Bull. Monster reported net sales of 4.6 billion for 2020, an increase of 9.5% from the previous year. Sales of Rockstar topped $851 billion in 2019. Due to the inaction from energy drink makers concerning the potential dangers of their products, some lawmakers argue that simple guidance and suggestions have never been enough and that objective calculable measures need to be taken to protect consumers. In April of 2012, Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin called for legislation that would extend FDA labeling requirements to beverages. Durbin has had success with the FDA before. His Food Safety Modernization Act was signed into law in 2011, granting the FDA more resources for inspection, mandatory recall authority, and the technology to trace a food poisoning outbreak to its source. Unfortunately, his concerns about caffeine have been continually dismissed by the FDA, who in 2012 determined that caffeine content in energy drinks doesn't pose a safety issue. Even if healthy adults can drink an energy drink safely, the concern about children consuming energy drinks still exists, with some states in the US taking measures into their own hands. Connecticut recently banned the sale of energy drinks to minors entirely. Several teenagers testified to make this a reality. Though Connecticut was the first state to succeed in banning the sale of energy drinks to minors, it's possible that other states will follow suit. If they do, we might be seeing fewer teens consuming energy drinks in the near future. Given how large the market is though, I wouldn't hold my breath. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, make sure that you're subscribed, check out our YouTube channel if you wanna see the visual component to these episodes and consider joining our Patreon if you want to have some extra goodies and fun stuff as well. Leave us a review on wherever you're listening to your podcast so that more people can be recommended this podcast as well. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel too. I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to hang out with me and learn about caffeine and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.